0: Welcome to Augmented Humanity. Our guests are modern explorers working at the intersection of technology and the humanities. They help us to understand ourselves and the worlds we create in this digital age. They are thinkers, creators, makers, and academics working in diverse fields, like history, the visual arts, communications, and comparative religion. I'm your host, Craig Goldsmith.
1: I'm your host, Ellen Dornan.
0: On this program, we're joined by Mark Marino and Leonardo Flores, both with the Electronic Literature Organization. Leonardo Flores is chair of the English Department at Appalachian State University. Author and critic Mark Marino recently published Critical Code Studies at MIT Press and produces crowdsourced literature with, meanwhile, NetProv Studios.
1: Thank you both so much for coming here today. We've been talking a little bit about generative literature, and I want to pick up that thread a little bit because one of the things I started getting really puzzled about is authorship and readership. And who's actually creating the literature? Say, if we're looking at adaptive works, where you're making the choices, or these generative works where the literature is sort of a vehicle that can be filled with different kinds of meaning. And I'm not sure how you all sort out these relationships.
2: I'm Leo Flores. One of the things I really like about writing with machines, about two years ago now, I gave a talk called Distant writing, and the idea is it was a play on the concept of distant reading in the digital humanities, which is about using machines to read large text and doing these things. But we're used to writing very directly. Whether we use a pencil or a pen or a keyboard, we are selecting letters, putting words together in sequences in ways that are static, but also generally deliberate. And here we are putting one word after another and then revising and the whole thing. That's kind of like a close writing. It's like a notion of control. Control by the artist. Yeah, you have 100% control. But when you are writing generative literature, instead of using a pen or a keyboard, you are creating a machine, a little software machine that is going to then write the kinds of output you intend. What you're doing is you're creating a field of possibilities with that little machine, with that little program. I'll give you an example from the very beginnings of electronic literature. As far as we know, the first work of electronic literature is Christopher Strachey's Love Letters, written 1952 on the Manchester One computer at Manchester University in England. This is one of the first computers, huge mainframe computers, that left the military after World War II, where they were used for code breaking by Alan Turing and other folks, And Christopher Strachey writes a love letter generator that whenever run, would print out these short little love letters. Here's one. I'll read it real quick. Duck, duck, you are my little affection, my beautiful appetite, my eager hunger, my covetous love lusts for your infatuation. My yearning anxiously clings to your fellow feeling. Yours eagerly, M-U-C. Or Manchester University Computer. You know, it's delightful, right? But every time you run it, it will generate. But it will generate within a field of possibilities. So you have an address, you have certain adjectives, nouns, modifiers that are coming in together, and these are intended. You can't say that the author is the computer program. It's a kind of a cyborg authorship. It's like a collaboration. Exactly. If the machine isn't producing the output you want, you modify the machine until it does. For instance, Darius Kazemi, the famous Twitter bot maker, he has written about ethics. If you create a machine that generates racist, sexist, or otherwise offensive content, and you have not done anything to correct that, then that's on you. You can't just blame the machine. That sticks to you as an author.
3: So again, this is Mark Marino. And just to pick up right where Leo just left off, there's the famous case of the Microsoft chatbot named Tay that they made that was a little bit more AI-driven that learned to speak by having people speak with it. And, of course, it learned the language of the Internet. It learned hate. And so they had to pull that thing off the Internet. So I love Leo's idea of the computer's a collaborator. The person doing the programming is a collaborator. Probably the person who built the machine is a collaborator on some level. And then the other person I just want to bring in is this notion of the reader and the interactor as one of the co-authors as well. And that's an idea that I was first introduced to by George Landau, who did a lot of theorizing on literary hypertext back in the day. And so when I think about some of these projects, art-making projects, I think it's helpful to put them in terms of some of the other arts. So Rob Wittig and I, we collaborate at Meanwhile NetProv Studios to make these netprops, these online collaborative things. And we often talk about creating playgrounds for people. So a playground is nothing until the children arrive or the teens who show up sometimes a little too old for the playground. Right. Or the grandparents show up to watch their grandkids. Or is it architects? Right. Maybe architecture gives us a model. Or maybe cooking gives us the model of recipes passed down from generation to generation. Everybody puts their new spin on them. And then there's something that's going to happen in that moment with those ingredients. And then something else is going to happen when the people taste it, right? They're completing the recipe. Another art that has recently come into my realm are the intersections between coding and the fiber arts, which includes weaving and stitching and knitting. And so these are these pattern-based, process-based art forms that are passed down generation to generation, that are shared communally. And that sort of similar to cooking, you're following a little bit of a recipe, a pattern perhaps, and then you are executing it, I guess, in collaboration with your tools. And then again, maybe the knitted scarf is completed when it goes around the neck of your loved one, hopefully to comfort them, not to choke them. If we think about digital art forms that invite readers as participants... It might be, in the case of a poetry generator, the person just letting it run on their screen. There are these two uh, fine theorists up at UC Davis who love to let computer generated just run on their browser just as long as they can run. So it's like a bubbling fountain that you might have in your living room rather than here's this book of poetry. Or maybe it's interactive fiction. It's the good old-fashioned go west, go east, or VR, which is often the same thing where you're navigating through space. And again, that piece is not complete until the person comes in and starts moving through the space, observing what they observe, interacting, participating in story making.
2: The writer that writes a hypertext fiction is yielding some of that control to the reader who will be drawn to make certain choices.
3: Or not drawn. (laughs) Or not drawn.
2: You sometimes also yield control to the computer's ability to generate randomness. It depends on where you want to let go of some of that control.
3: I've recently been doing some collaborating with a wonderful interactive fiction writer named Ryan Veter. And he'll say, well, we've got this juicy part. He's like, I'm going to put that behind some puzzles. And I said, why? I want people to see that. I don't want them to have to get through puzzles. He's like, I don't think you understand In the world of interactive fiction, really, it's like the reader's hero's journey, like their negotiation with the piece is the story, not just those little gems that you wrote that they're going to get, you know, if they navigate this in a certain way, but it's their processing all of that.
1: I was going to ask you guys about this because when I was a kid, I was really into the choose-your-own-adventures. But if something bad happens, then you just go back to the page you just chose from, and then you chose the other thing, right? And I found when I was looking at your piece, The Living Will, Mark, where you couldn't go back and change it. You had to start reading from the beginning. You actually saw the text morph and transform. And I got very upset. And that's when I realized that I was really much more deeply personally invested as a reader than I am when I'm reading just linear fiction. I wanted that hero's journey myself. I wanted to do it right.
3: Which is a little bit of a trap in that piece because for people who have not seen it, as you read the electronic living will of the main character as one of his heirs, you do accrue medical and legal fees the longer you read it. And then when you get to the inheritances, you can choose to steal from the other heirs if you wish. You know, as an English major, I came to learn this a long time ago that, you know, maybe I'm playing a different game than other people are playing success-wise or otherwise. Certainly you can't win that one necessarily necessarily. The losing is more interesting. Oh, I should put that on my tombstone. I collaborate with my children on these digital stories about a magical foster care home. And they are choose-your-own-adventure stories about these foster kids. And it's inspired by my own family because we have an adoptive family. We're a forever family. And so we write from our experience. But I learned through the Electronic Literature Organization a great presentation by a guy named Lucas Prieto. There are a good portion of readers who, when they're going through those choose-your-own-adventure stories, they feel a kind of anxiety that they're missing out on something. So now here I am making these stories that are about foster care children, children who have very little agency. And the last thing I want to do is cause my readers anxiety. And so we've worked very hard in those stories. We don't have a back button, but we do have jetpacks that allow you to go back and remake choices. An interesting thing came out a few years ago that changed my relationship to digital literature. And there were these psychological studies that showed that, well, even though a lot of us were predicated on this notion of like, infinite choice is better... I think all you have to do is walk into like a beauty store or anything like that to realize that is obviously not the case. You want to have a few choices and then those choices can become more meaningful. And then also maybe do a little bit of funneling so that you're not really ever going to miss out on things that are truly important. Because as it turns out, some things about storytelling, like having predictable endings are kind of important to building significance unless you want your story to be about multiplicities, which some people do, and, but not everybody.
0: Well, and it also brings up, I would argue, notions of trust between the artistic creator and the viewer or reader, which is people don't want to feel like you're just going to pull the rug out from under them. People don't like to be suckered.
3: Yes. So for good or for bad, that suckering thing, I go where angels fear to tread, which is so sometimes with our net NetProbs, we do them in public in a way that can be unpredictable. And just two pro projects I just want to mention very, very quickly. One, we've done through the social media accounts of reality TV celebrity Spencer Pratt involving his followers, where his followers didn't necessarily know we were running the account, but maybe people who are a little more sensitive readers would wonder why an obscure British poet would be tweeting through this account. Maybe more unpredictable was when we did run the fictional Occupy group, Occupy MLA, that was protesting the Modern Language Association. It was a little more war of the worlds than we would hope. And did lead to the Modern Language Association increasing their security at their conference to prevent us from occupying them and protesting for adjuncts rights. At the same time... Coincidentally, I guess, the Modern Language Association began to promote its own efforts in the name of adjuncts rights in teaching. So I'm not saying Occupy MLA was part of that, but I'm saying there was a huge amount of uncertainty, unpredictability of how that was going to play out, even from experienced NEPROF creators. And we had participants who were unfortunately, maybe unwittingly, stumbling into an art piece the way you might stumble into a happening or something like that. For good or for ill.
2: And I would add, it was interesting to see, and I'm not in any way trolling anyone here. This is the MLA, right? You have these highly sophisticated scholars of literature and languages and all these things who are so used to being really savvy and critical about works, but they were just like any other person, emoting and reacting and critiquing what happened in very naive ways. They couldn't get out of themselves onto their critical minds and kind of look at the thing. Or maybe they did, but from the starting point of, oh, I felt betrayed because I thought this was real and it wasn't, or whatever. It was interesting to watch from the outside as it unfolded.
3: Here's the thing to throw out there. And again, I'm the last person to necessarily argue for the ethics or not of that particular piece. But I will say that from my point of view, you know, these platforms have been around for the blink of an eye. Facebook meta has convinced us that we need to verify authenticity of people, and that's largely so that they can authentically take and sell our data to other people, right? So some of us remember when the internet was a place of more uncertainty where you weren't sure who was behind any particular message at any given time, and then there are others of us who see that as, as an invitation for creativity and creative play. I definitely get comments, obviously, from my great aunt who will say, I don't quite understand what's happening on your Facebook account. But at the same time, part of the spirit that I take to digital literature is inviting people to say, hey, all of these new platforms that are arriving, what if we did something literary together on them instead of playing them at their terms and pretending that they have to be transparent windows into our realities? The first person to use the filter on their Instagram picture should be well aware. Authenticity is a fabrication that's pretty valueless.
0: This isn't real. This is performance art. And I'm gonna treat it like performance art. It's not reality and it's not physical space. And I'm telling a story here, and it's a story, it's not a documentary.
2: We're both nodding furiously. <laughs>
3: I absolutely. Agree. I agree. <laughs>
0: Mark, Leo, thank you so much for talking about electronic literature.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: Yeah, it's a treat. And if you would like more information about Mark and Leo's work, you can visit eliterature.org. Augmented Humanity is a program of the New Mexico Humanities Council produced in partnership with KUNM-FM. You can visit us online and find out more about our programs at nmhumanities.org. Our theme music comes courtesy James Whiten, and we've had production assistance from Tristan McClum.